Nina Stolchkovich, the International Finance Corporation's Vice President for Asia and the Pacific, recently made her first visit to Australia in this role. During this visit, she spoke at a seminar at ANU on IFC's new strategy, its approaches to maximising finance for development and private sector investment, and its work in the Asia-Pacific region. All right, well, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you very much uh, for coming to this session. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Stephen Howes and I direct the Development Policy Centre. We're part of the Crawford School and uh, we're putting the event uh, on today. And I'd also like to um, give you the traditional welcome uh, on behalf of the first Australians, uh, the uh, Indigenous Australians, the first owners of the land, the traditional owners of the land on which we're meeting and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present. Uh, so today we're very uh, fortunate to have uh, continuing from the IFC. I'd like to welcome all of you. Uh, including, uh, I should mention, uh, my good friend Daniel Street, who used to be Kevin Rudd's advisor on uh, foreign aid. So someone we interacted with regularly. And uh, as I was chatting Daniel, I'm sure he's not surprised by the political instability. It must bring back a few memories, uh, no I imagine. <laughs> so, but anyway, try not to check your phones during this. But yeah, welcome to all the IFC uh, delegation. Thank you very much for... Uh, reaching out to us and offering us the opportunity to have this conversation with Nana, Nana Stolchevich, if yes. I've got the name right, who is uh, the Vice President for East Asia and the Pacific uh, in the International Financial Corporation. And um, uh, Nana and I actually joined uh, the World Bank Group at the same time. Uh, she's uh, did much better than I have, reaching <laughs> Vice President, <laughs> so <yourself>. congratulations. <laughs> Um, and has been Vice President for a while, but only recently took over as Vice President for East Asia and the Pacific. And of course, that is the region that we focus on. In particular, we have an interest here in the Pacific, so it'll be really interesting to hear what you've got to say. Uh, so we're going to do this as a fairly informal uh, conversation. That's why I'm sitting up here as well. Um, but I don't want to ask all the questions, so I'm really looking to all of you to uh, contribute to the conversation. Uh, so it'll mainly be a Q&A, uh, but we have asked Nana just to make a short opening statement, just to kind of set the scene. So welcome, and over to you. Thank you very much, Steve, and thank you all for your interest. It's great. It's a great pleasure to be here in uh, Australia, in Canberra, for the first time in Canberra, and uh, at an exciting time, I guess. <laughs> and Daniel tells me it's normal. Um, <laughs> and uh, to speak about development finance, the role of the private sector, IFC, and I would be happy to, to, to respond to any of your questions. Uh, I wanted to uh, just correct you, Steve. I'm, I'm now uh, in the role of regional vice president for all of Asia, not just oh, East sorry. Asia. So it's right. South Asia, East right. Asia, and Pacific. And in my past, uh, I used to work um, in a lot in Asia, in South Asia, but I, I haven't worked in the Pacific. So um, since January, since I assumed this new role, uh, for me to get a better sense of what is happening in the region, uh, which is a high growth region, 65% uh, of the world's population are here, I started traveling um, around my, my countries, and uh, now I can, I can say that I've probably visited most of them. And the last piece that was left for me, and I had to do it during a slow summer season where some of the things in Washington are not keeping us so busy, I, I came to the Pacific. And I went to see three countries, somewhat different, but still connected. Um, one was, first stop was Papua New Guinea, uh, second one was Solomon Islands, and the third one was Fiji. And it, this, this visits were short, but the way how they were organized by the, the country team gave me a very good insight into what are the opportunities, what are the challenges. And I think in each of them, I had very specific um, impression, and I'm, I'm happy to talk, uh, talk about that. Before we get into that, I just want to tell you a little bit more about IFC and private sector in general. And those of you who follow development finance, you probably realize how big shift uh, has happened with the Addis uh, conference and the pronouncement of SDGs. Uh, in the past, I think many players were doing their own thing and in not so, so much coordinated way, but I think the world has realized that with SDGs and the ambition that they bring, we will need about four to five trillion dollars per year of financing if we want a world uh, with full access to power, water, education, health, etc. And I think that has shaken all of us up and put institutions like IFC who are solely focusing on private sector into the center of attention. Because uh, there is no way that traditional aid can bring us those trillions and we, need, we realize that we need private sector and we need to bring private sector into solving some of those complex development challenges. 
Uh, how are we going to do that? Uh, this is not going to happen just by itself. Uh, we will need to create markets where they don't exist through proper policy sector reforms that, for example, colleagues from the World Bank and some other institutions can help us on. We need to incentivize private sector to come into some of those sectors, whether it's energy in Papua New Guinea or SMEs in, in Fiji or something else, tourism in Solomon Islands. And um, to do so, we now came with a range of financial tools that will allow us to blend somewhat concessional funding with commercial funding, which will ultimately give appropriate rates of return to the uh, first of its kind the kind of type of um, investors in those markets. And we are layering that with quite a lot of capacity building advisory services because in all these countries there is not enough capacity to implement some of those projects. So uh, that that's kind of the new way how IFC will be working on bringing private sector to create markets in some of the poorest countries in the world. Uh, we recently got approval for a capital, large capital increase uh, which is triple the size of the initial investment in IFC 60 years ago that our shareholders uh, made, which is a strong signal of their confidence in IFC, uh, our ability to leverage all these uh, financial tools that I talked about, our global presence, presence on the ground, links to the World Bank, um, and, and other partners, so that there is a trust in us that we can deliver in the next uh, 12 years. And, and as part of that capital increase package, we committed to do 30% of our, our work in what we call IDA and fragile and conflict-affected countries, and most of the, the countries in the Pacific fit in that category. So that's why I'm here. That's why we're having a several rounds of discussions today with DFAT, um, Australian Treasury, uh, because we also want to agree on what is the way forward for us in this new world where we're going to focus a lot more on this type of, of, of uh, countries and, and challenging markets. Okay, great. Thanks a lot. Well, look, I'll, um, I'll, I'll take questions uh, from the floor. I'll just start off with one myself to give you time to think. But on that theme, I mean, how when I was in the World Bank, uh, IFC was somewhat the poorer cousin, I'd say. Yes. Uh, as you all know, right, IFC, IBID, IDA are all parts of the World Bank group. Um, how does uh, IFC like lending now compare to that, to that of the World Bank? Um, Steve, because of that strong focus on the private sector mm -hmm. and because of the skills that we have, uh, we're the only ones in the World Bank group who actually know how to structure a viable deal. And we all know if we want to bring private sector, private sector will not come in if there is no vi viability of that particular project. And to add to that, I mean, I deeply believe that there is no impact if you structure poorly performing uh, projects. There will be no sustainable employment. Uh, you know, th there is no impact simply if you cannot do it. And we are probably the best in class in terms of uh, structuring projects so that they are viable. And this is why uh, our um, skills, our experience is now coming uh, very prominently within the World Bank Group uh, in the center of attention uh, to the point that our president has announced something internally that he calls a cascade where every single uh, part of the World Bank Group will have to ask before we do anything, a question whether private sector can do it. If private sector can do it, let the private sector do it. We should not be having public financing of uh, ports and airports and airlines if we believe that we can structure it uh, through private, the private sector. If private sector cannot do it, uh, the, the second question that we should be asking ourselves is why? What's, what is the constraint? And then we should work on removing those constraints. If it is simply a risk factor, we should be able now with some of these new instruments, financial instruments that we have, we should be able to de-risk it and still bring private sector. And only, only if we cannot even de-risk it, then we should resort to public financing. And, and I would say in all the financial instruments for pub public financing, I think grants should be at the lowest end of spectrum. Because a dollar of grant gives you a dollar of project value, right? But if you use a dollar of um, uh, blended finance or a dollar of IFC commercial finance, you can multiply it through mo additional mobilization and maximize financing for development, which is uh, in the core of, of our new strategy. Okay, so let's open it up. Who'd like to ask the first question? Yeah, okay, please uh, just Hi, introduce yourself. Um, so please, in terms welcome. of expanding upon just that there, have you identified some of those barriers existing for private sector engagement and what are they and what are some of the strategies that you're looking at? Mm -hmm. 
specifically in the Asia Pacific? In the Asia Pacific. Uh, shall we go question by question? Uh, yeah. Let's yeah. see how we, until we uh, run out of time. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, thank you. Uh, no, absolutely. I think in different countries it's different things. In Papua New Guinea, we focused a lot on energy access. Uh, only 13% of people uh, have energy access, and there is a relatively weak um, uh, state utility, uh, PNG power, that doesn't have financial means, doesn't have capacity to connect the desired number of households um, into the grid. Uh, their target is to connect 125,000 households per year. They can connect five to 6,000. So what we just did is we, we signed a co cooperation agreement with them to help them identify what will it take to get to that, uh, that size of, of connecting people. And it may mean that uh, they will have to change some of the uh, tariff um, regulations. It may mean that uh, we should uh, work with them on possible public-private partnership structures, advise them on how to structure some parts of the energy uh, supply through PPPs, which may then mean that they would need to create PPP law uh, in the country to allow for this to happen. So uh, once we identify an issue, then we, 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 we will use some of this work to identify constraints. In um, Fiji, we focused on uh, linkages with agri, uh, local agri uh, produce uh, because the country imports a lot of food for its uh, vibrant tourism, tourism sector. And that identific uh, identification of a, of a problem will help us now structure ways around addressing them. We realize that uh, the reason why this is not happening is that there is no reliable uh, quality supply of local produce. In some cases, the standards, food standards, especially for meat and fish, and now we are going to work with specific um, hotels and, and uh, the local farmers on how to resolve that problem. In more general ways, it's normally around the PPP laws, investment climate for small and medium businesses, and similar type of unlocking uh, the, the, the opportunities for private sector. Okay. Yeah. Just a, a simple question, which was, what would you identify as one or two standout examples in the region of uh, uh, blended finance projects and um, whether they can be, whether those standout examples can be uh, applied in the Pacific? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, I deeply believe that they can, even when we look at our global experience. Globally, we have, we have been using it a lot for how affordable housing finance, uh, for local currency instruments, because in many markets you do not have um, access to, to local currency and then it's such, such a high risk to borrow in dollars and, and uh, you know, expose yourself to forex fluctuations. In this particular region, the first project that we are structuring um, with uh, IDA private sector window, um, uh, blended finance facility, uh, part of it, is um, a $50 million project with ANZ. Uh, that will uh, allow us to uh, finance a number of um, energy, smaller energy uh, projects, renewable energy projects across eight countries uh, in the Pacific. Uh, we had to bundle them up because they are too small individually and too risky individually, and we are de-risking A and Z at the, the, the whole facility level uh, by uh, taking the first uh, loss uh, guarantee for the first seven million uh, of losses or, or, you know, if the companies are not able to pay, we will be absorbing that through that uh, de-risking piece. So that's one of the projects that can be a model for us to work across multiple smaller countries by bundling up uh, some, some of them into the same type of facility, which can focus in some cases on agriculture, on SMEs, on some other other sectors, gender issues, etc. So we'll see how it goes. It's still not closed, but it is under at a late stage of development. And if it works, we can leverage some some of that. In several other countries uh, in the Indo-Pacific region, um, we have done local currency de-risking. Uh, IFC takes open position on the local currency in a particular market to allow uh, a bank. Uh, to issue a local currency bond and then finance a range of projects from that. And so we, we have several examples of where we can deploy successfully blended finance, including in this region. I'll just um, interrupt with my own question, then I'll go keep going around. I was just thinking, I mean, those sound like great examples, great projects. Um, but I was just going back to your earlier comment on this, what you call the cascade, right, from yes. the president. First of all, you've got to think, can the private sector do it? I just took me back to when I was in the World Bank. I was in infrastructure 
and that in the 90s, you know, infrastructure was very much seen as a sunset business, the private sector was going to do it. Yeah, and then Enron collapsed, right? And, uh, yeah, you know, I worked in Indonesia and India on private sector participation. They both failed. And I'd kind of thought, you know, especially with the rise of China, we'd see a much more pragmatic uh, attitude, the World Bank getting back into infrastructure, and it doesn't really matter if it's done by the government or the private sector. Mm. Um, but from what you're saying, in fact, it's still very much emphasis on the private sector. Mm. So in infrastructure in particular, I guess, like what is mm-hmm. the World Bank group? Mm-hmm. Is it a more pragmatic approach or is it more, yeah, it's got to be the private sector? No, I think it's a pragmatic approach. Not everywhere you can do infrastructure through PPPs or in through private sector uh, means. But you also have you don't you want to avoid cases uh, where you would uh, develop a port by putting 500 million of ODA into it, right? Mm-hmm. When you know that ports are more commercial uh, infrastructure is more commercial infrastructure subsector. So you ought to ask yourself whether that port could have been structured um, um, as a PPP, right? Mm -hmm. So in that sense, we are becoming Mm -hmm. pragmatic. Um, There will be many cases where where, uh, infrastructure will have to be built built, uh, through public public sources. There are countries, like uh, I know one in this region, who simply decided it's all too slow, right? It takes years sometimes to structure and bid out uh, a PPP project. And they said, we don't have that time to waste, right? We have our own government cycle and let us build the publicly financed mm-hmm. infrastructure and then we will sell mm-hmm. later on. So we're trying to be pragmatic and to work in all types mm-hmm. of circumstances. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Uh, do you know, who used to work at the IFC? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> about a decade ago, I was a monitoring evaluation officer at the IFC. Oh, okay. Um, Stephen convinced me to come and work um, with him. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm still associated with the centre. Um, questions I had back then, and I think I still have it now, in terms of, and so I'm going to change the conversation towards the evaluation part of it and the monitoring part of it. Um, a lot of it for the PCR, so the project completion reports that we did, um, a lot of it was looking at the number of loans that were dispersed. Um, SMEs. And even now, when I looked at one of your metrics, the SDGs, it's no poverty, and um, the monitoring tools that you have are the number of farmers reached, um, the number of SME loans. Now, there's all, there's all these issues about indebtedness um, with microfinance. And is there a way that um, IFC can move more um, towards, I suppose, more social indicators and rather than just measuring impact and poverty alleviation through one instruments such as um, the number of loans um, dispersed? Now, I know that um, IFC does evaluations as well that go, go into greater detail, but they're more ad hoc, um, whereas all the projects have these indicators, and I'm, I'm just hoping that you, mm-hmm. in a position of power, might be able to um, push um, less of those kind of indicators and more of those. You're right. I mean, at that time, we didn't um, know how to go about it. Uh, and I, I think in, in mid-2000, we, we put a lot of reach indicators uh, without looking at quality of education, quality of health, and, and some of the real impact. Right now, you probably are aware that we have set up a full new department, uh, economics department. We hired after several years of not having a chief economist or a, um, a vice president for economics. We we uh, put an experienced person into that role. And within that uh, group, uh, now evaluation sits, as well as um, development impact measure, measuring, right? And we, we're developing a new tool, very similar to what TBRD had uh, on this transition index, which can give you a sense of ex-ante of the development impact. And development impact is also related to the impact to the sector, right? Uh, because our new strategy is creating markets. And um, if you don't have that sense through your particular project, if it's just enough, a one-off deal, you know, employing a few people and doing this and that, you would not have a full sense of uh, impact to the sector. And you're trying to, and that tool is called AIM. Um, ex-ante impact uh, measurement, and it's now, now becoming one of the big factors in terms of how we make choices ex-ante into what we will do. And of course, then you monitor through supervision on what you are delivering and compare that with, with what you what you aimed uh, to achieve. But it's a very exciting tool for all the decision makers in IFC because finally there is a common common way of looking at impact at the beginning of the project cycle. Okay, good. Matt, would you? I thought you'd had your hand up. Uh, no. no. Okay. Someone else did. Ah, sorry, over here. Yep. You're, you're all right. Thanks, David. Uh, Nina, Phil Montgomery from GHD, private 
consulting firm here. Um, I'd like to hear your views on safeguards, where environmental and social safeguards are going with IFC. I'm aware that, you know, the slightly differing standards on safeguards between private sector financial institutions in this region have caused uh, a bit of confusion at times and frustration for both borrowers and the private sector. So where do you see it going? Is there pressure to lower standards, increase mm -hmm. them? I mean, um, maybe to start with that uh, we deliver impact through our clients. Uh, we don't deliver it directly, right? We are a financial institution. So for us, the key is to choose clients through whom we can deliver those standards or improve their standards so that they get uh, get delivered. And this is where a lot of confusion is, right? Normally, when IFC gets involved, there is a bigger scrutiny about a particular client. And yes, many companies in the world claim that because of their engagement with IFC, they became um, of that scale, of that... Um, uh, and that, that it improved their bottom line as well. But many also have, in a way, suffered because there is a greater scrutiny. Um, so that's kind of an intro. And then I also wanted to say that, as you remember, IFC was the first uh, IFI that set performance standards uh, for the rest of the world, and in a way. And that um, banks who subscribe to that, other private uh, commercial financial institutions um, uh, are signed up to something that we call equator principles and are now adopting those standards. And we didn't sit on our laurels and we, we kept improving them. And a few years back, we had a review of those performance standards and strengthened them. And there are eight of them and, and all of uh, from biodiversity to, you know, uh, gender issues, etc. So all of our clients for to qualify for financing from IFC have to adopt those standards. Now, many of them do not have them right away, uh, especially in countries like PNG and Solomon Islands and similar IDA and FCS countries, but we work with them to bring them up to those standards. And, and now, um, to help them even more, we are developing advisory products so that we can work with them on environmental and social uh, standards and improve uh, their their ability to deliver on our performance standards. The biggest challenge for us is how do we work w through financial institutions, because uh, uh, you know we assess them as a whole, but then they have their own lending business. And uh, this um, tracing our own funding to where ultimately it goes, it, it's a bit of a challenge because normally we structure facilities with, with financial institutions and we got into problems with, with some of those cases. But what we are trying now to do is to tie our funding to a financial institution, to a specific uh, uh, set of projects that have to be delivered. So we're putting a little bit more control into where our money goes, rather than providing very flexible credit lines uh, to the banks. I don't know whether it uh, responded to your question, and you may, may want to have a sub-question, but I, I just wanted to say that uh, things are better when we get involved. Is it always easy to implement? Do clients always follow what they sign up for? Uh, perhaps not, but we are now trying to build more advisory capacity to build uh, to, to, uh, to basically teach them how to how to do it. Yeah, no, I think that, that that's good. Just wanted to hear your your views and also you know just acknowledge also that yeah I think there is a a very widely held perception that the IFC does in fact set the standards for particularly for the infrastructure sector. And, but, and that's got to be a good thing. But on lowering the standards, we, we had that question. When we, when we realized that you're going to get $5.5 billion of capital um, to invest in risky projects in, in riskier countries, I mean, we, we, we know that, that it will be hard to get right away clients there who will fulfill all those standards. And many people asked about standards, will they be reduced? And the simple answer is no. We will never reduce our standards. Um, that we have worked so hard to develop. But what, we, what may happen in those countries is we may give those clients more time to reach the compliance with those standards and not only give them time, but work hand in hand with them to do it. Soltuna, for example, in Solomon Islands um, is, is, a, is a classic example of a client who we had to hand hold to you know, bring its factory to the to the right standards, and we continue to work with them on some other 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 aspects, such as uh, absenteeism of their employees, etc., helping them improve 
so that's the type of approach we would take in, in those uh, more challenging countries. Thank you. Okay, well, maybe that's a good uh, note on which to um, shift to kind of the Pacific and PNG. Um, but anyway, keep asking questions. I'll keep looking for you. But well, I'll, I'll, oh, yeah, okay, well, I'll just take on this little digression and then we'll go to you, Bob. Um, yeah, because there was, a, and you said actually, so this is 30% it's got to be spent in low income and fragile states. By 2030, and right. just to give you a sense, I mean, of a step up, it's, uh, right now it's 10% globally. So from 10, tripling right. that, and growing at, at the same time. So in absolute terms, this is a huge growth, right? right. Uh, because we are growing the institution, we want to be uh, double the size of what we are now, and within that, we want to triple right. our uh, IDA and FCS uh, right. program. Okay. So, yeah, so I guess I, I have mixed feelings on the one hand. Like, these are poor countries that definitely need help. Uh, on the other hand, you know, these are countries where, you know, really the binding constraint or a binding constraint is poor policy. And, um, you know, that has to be resolved by the countries themselves. And, I'm, you know, I was interested, you said on PNG, you know, they need, uh, yes, more private sector and energy and then they need a PPP policy and law. And I remember, in fact, ADB has been working on that and they finally got PNG to adopt one. And of course, it uh, hasn't made any difference, right? Mm -hmm. So you end up kind of pushing through these policies and laws. That's the easy thing to do, but it doesn't make any difference on the ground because the political economy hasn't yes. really changed. So anyway, look, I know it's a tough question, but I mean, how do you make progress when the binding constraint is really weak institutions, poor policies? If you fixed up those, you know, private sector would be much more dynamic. Absolutely, and yeah. uh, Steve, unfortunately, IFC itself cannot uh, cannot solve right, it. That's it. Uh, so we would count it. on, for example, those countries that have IMF programs. We would ha count on tighter policies, mm -hmm. policy restrictions, uh, you know, imposed on by by IMF. We are now trying to work much more closely with the World Bank so that we uh, embed some of those conditions into World Bank financing. All the countries want loans from the World Bank. Uh, but if you put uh, conditions there that you are going to get this much until you fix that, and when you fix that, then you will go get more, I think we can be maybe more effective. Mm -hmm. But governments do change, their priorities change. In some, some cases, we see populist policies that, you know, at the end of the, before the elections, you know, suddenly start spending, you know, all this um, uh, fiscal budget resources, you know, to things that, again, could have been financed by private sector, mm -hmm. etc. So, but I, I have hopes with the World Bank, given the cloud, uh, you know, and the power that they have with the governments, that we can maybe focus on transparency, strength of institutions, proper advice, proper capacity mm -hmm. to be built mm -hmm. for them to implement their uh, their projects. You're absolutely right. I think uh, sometimes it's not even the lack of projects; it's the lack of uh, implementation mm -hmm. capacity. Mm -hmm. To, to implement mm. in the right way. Mm. So you just come from PNG Solomon's Fiji. Yes. You know, yes. With your vast international experience, I mean, how did these countries strike you? Did you think there are lots of opportunities there or what are the main issues? Just some thoughts on, um, on the region. Look, the, the three of them are very different. Um, mm. And um, uh, I, was, I was definitely, I mean, it was an eye-opener in a sense. I spent a lot of time in Africa and what I saw there, in particular in Solomon Islands, uh, I call it my Africa. I mean, it really reminded me of mm. the challenges that I observed in some of the African countries, where basically you have nowhere to start in, in so many ways. We spent a lot of time on the tourism sector in, in uh, Solomon Islands because uh, we uh, looked at one province in Solomon Islands, western province, which has it's potentially very competitive for tourism development. And we brought a, a range of stakeholders around the same table who contributed to that study, from the private uh, players uh, to uh, the ministries, to people who promote uh, Solomon Islands uh, in tourism. And um, World Bank, of course, Australia High Commissioner was there as well. And we brainstormed on what will it take. And we came up with a range of recommendations. I mean, you need to have airports, you need to have um, airport terminals, runways, uh, resorts, uh, uh, boat lines, jetties, um, skills, uh, you name it, right? And uh, minimum standards. Mm -hmm. Because you cannot market properties if you don't fulfill the minimum standards that we are now going to help um, Solomon Islands in Western Province set. So it's it's just a, a subset of what that that uh, analysis has has told us. But and IFC will coordinate a group of these stakeholders to start now working on implementation. So implementation may take uh, quite some time, but we, in the meantime, we agreed to try out a few things, to pick uh, maybe a few suitable islands where land issues are not that prominent and work on bringing private uh, sector players into them. So you showcase 
that it's possible at the same time you work in a more programmatic way on one part of tourism development in Solomon Islands. So that was the impression in Solomon Islands. In Fiji, I thought that they were a little bit ahead, uh, especially on mm -hmm. tourism, but oh, with yeah. still a lot of room to improve, mm -hmm. to diversify their tourism, to connect to greater experience in the Pacific, bringing tourists from far away only to Fiji. I'm not sure that that's a good strategy. It would be nice to connect them with other the rest of the experience that they can have, maybe from Vanuatu, Solomon Islands, some other countries. So we talked a lot about that. Uh, we saw opportunities there for affordable housing, for SME financing, for greater linkages of local economy into the main um, breadwinner for the government, which is the tourism sector. And Papua New Guinea was... Uh, First of all, it's the largest country in the in the Pacific area for us, so we ought to focus there. There are more, but I was taken aback by the issues around um, sexual violence, domestic violence, positioning of women in the economy, and yet I met some very impressive women leading the way to try to make things uh, different. We are working with companies on their uh, policies towards uh, women, gender equality, um, uh, also providing shelter for women who are exposed to violence at their homes. Uh, but I think that's one of the biggest issues that if, I, if, if it somehow doesn't get fixed over time, will prevent tourism, will prevent many private sector also to, uh, to come in. And then I already mentioned the energy issue. If you don't solve energy in PNG, we can barely solve any other uh, sectors because you need energy for pretty much everything else. So this is roughly a summary mm. of what I observed there, but mm. um, a lot of challenges uh, to, to mm. you know, work on. Mm. No, interesting. I think it would ring true with a lot of people here. Uh, might ask Bob then, if you want to ask your question at this stage. Thank you. Um, I really welcome the fact that IFC is starting to I'll just mention Bob is a former uh, Parliamentary Secretary for International Development. Um, so, very uh, experience. In the Pacific, I think it's uh, over. You are very welcome. But... I wonder how Australia and New Zealand can help you um, to achieve it. One of the things that I and others, including Jim Adams, have been writing about is the possibility of, of either Australia and New Zealand jointly or Australia separately setting up a development finance institution that can uh, operate in the Pacific uh, either at that stage, we're talking about filling the gap that IFC and ADB were leaving, but if you're coming in, that's terrific. Is, is that going to be helpful, or is there a different, better way that Australia and New Zealand can help you to be successful in the Pacific? I will give you my personal view uh, on this, although I have seen, um, for example, Canada setting up its new development uh, bank. I've seen, you know, how development banks from some of the Western European countries, uh, like KFW, DG, FMO, have worked um, in this space. Uh, my personal view is that uh, there is not lack of money uh, to finance all these things. There is lack of, of projects bankable projects or implementation capacity to implement them. So if we simply start providing more money, uh, I'm not sure that we will be solving the problem. So going back to how Australia, New Zealand, or potential uh, new development bank that you may want to set up can help us, it, it really has to fill that gap between the opportunity in the country and making some of those projects well prepared for financing. And I, I think we are all chasing that financing bit and not spending enough time on what I call the upstream part, project preparation, project development, training, building skills uh, that will be employed in private hospitals, in um, tourism. And so that's where we can maybe brainstorm a little bit. And then um, fully commercial for this part of the world is probably not the way to go. Uh, but 100% aid or grants or it's definitely not the way to go because we will run out of money very quickly. So we're looking at the ways of how to use some structures where one dollar of, of, of ODA can give us ten dollars of project value. And those blended finance structures that I talked about are allowing us to do that. So this is just a few thoughts as you start working on that concept. But let's try to give uh, these countries uh, or, or, or projects what's really needed rather than giving more of, of the same. One of the questions that uh, 
concern being, you went somewhere to, just to deal with it when you talked about grouping eight projects across different countries. Is the question of scale. I mean, yes, uh, yes. For, for the IFC, some of these countries in the Pacific, much smaller than the three you went to, exactly. are going to be very difficult for operation at your level to get a viable proposal uh, from Tuvalu uh, or Kiribati or somewhere. Uh, so, is, is there something in your thinking that is dealing with that question? Because that's always what's made me think that maybe the IFC wasn't going to be the best vehicle for operating in the Pacific, not because you don't have the skill set, because clearly mm -hmm. you do, but the scale is just yes. too small for your operation. Uh, it's a fair question, and um, just there is, uh, we were just at DFAT at this meeting and we got the same question. Uh, we can do small projects, but we cannot do uh, 20 uh, $50,000 projects, right, in any of the countries, including the smallest country in the world. So I, 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 uh, I have high hopes based on this ANZ facility, where you actually work with a partner, one or two or maybe three, you can set up those type of vehicles, either venture capital funds or uh, facilities for debt or facilities for somewhat blended uh, kind of debt, and then um, uh, have certain parameters, right, uh, what qualifies for financing, so that you get only one chapeau approval of the financing for that entity or vehicle or facility, and then you deploy it more flexibly, right? Uh, but it will be very hard for us to work on too many small projects that will fulfill those performance standards that I talked about and uh, the governance standards, etc. Et um, and as I said, we don't intend to reduce those, uh, those standards. But uh, one plea to um, those new vehicles and instruments, I think we should always ask ourselves whether it's a runway or a terminal building or a road or whether, whether it could be done in other than grant uh, financing. Uh, because that's how we will very quickly spend our very limited ODA and not go very far. Yeah, Matt works a lot on this uh, issue on infrastructure in the Pacific. Yeah, yeah and I guess my, my question follows on from Bob's in many ways. I'm, I'm particularly interested in uh, the way in which I see might engage with the very small states, so Nauru, Tuvalu, both with populations of 10,000, um, both without the, the banking presence, really, or the banking presence. I mean, you, you talk about the full grant money not going. Mm -hmm. um, well, the, the $8 dollar not, not going as far as it could if it's in grant form rather than loans, but these countries actually do receive enormous amounts of aid when they have infrastructure projects that sometimes 20% of GDP is quite, quite different to the rest of the developing world. So how does that affect your thinking in terms of how the IRC might engage with those countries? I, don't get me wrong, I think uh, that, that, that aid is needed, especially initially, but for countries to really grow and employ people and you know, diversify their economies as small as they are, I think they will need the private sector. And uh, if you all go overboard with aid, I mean, I, I had a very interesting um, conversation with the Fijian Minister of Economy. They give $1,000 to smallholders to incentivize them to start their agri, uh, small agri produce. They don't want to take it, right? Because you don't have a commercial way to make it sustainable, to actually make money out of it, to keep you away from cities and keep you uh, at your home. So the same way, I mean, for housing, they give 15,000 uh, grant, you know, for you to take a house. But I think if we can, the more commercial we can structure some of these things, let's say SMEs in Tuvalu, engaging them in some activities, supporting whatever is the sector that, that they need to link on, I actually think it will be longer term, sustain, more sustainable, and we will position them better for growth. You don't want just to keep them stable. You want infrastructure for others, other sectors to grow. I guess just to follow up on that, you know, one of the um, views we've taken, or a number of people have taken, including myself, is you know a lot of these countries aren't going to follow a conventional development path of industrialization. They're just too small and uncompetitive. And so a big part of the future is labor mobility. Mm -hmm. So rather than trying to get jobs into these uncompetitive environments, get the people oh. to where the jobs are, which is Australia and New Zealand. And, and bring the money back. And bring the money back. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, this is not just a Pacific uh, phenomenon. We see this in Asia, right, in Nepal, Philippines. This is a really important source of foreign earnings, and it's private sector, right? This private sector activity has to be facilitated by the government, but it's private sector. So I just wondered whether in the Pacific, this is something I discussed uh, with IFC, with Tom and the others, 
But yeah, either in the Pacific or more broadly in Asia, is this something IFCC is a possible area where you could uh, invest support? Uh, absolutely, and I think Nepal and Philippines to me are the best examples mm. from from my region, and we are working on different things. I mean, these people do not bring only money back, they also bring some knowledge right. and some experience and some skills. So I think for local governments to get them back with their money, but also ideas, mm. is, is a smart thing to do. Mm. And um, in the Philippines, uh, we, we are looking at, at helping the government also think through a potential financial institution that will be handling uh, not just remittances, but also dealing with that segment of the population, mm. which is quite significant. Mm. I mean, Fili- yeah. Philippines exports people in yes. a way. That's the largest yeah. export from Philippines. So we have some innovative solutions there, and we can maybe, uh, depending on uh, the scale of um, uh, population that actually leaves the Pacific Islands and works in these other countries, maybe we can think of something cross-country uh, uh, in this space. Maybe too small to set up something in Tuvalu or Samoa, right? But let's try to, to think uh, across the region. But the exciting part of it is, to me, that they can go back to their own countries and set up some businesses and do it at the level that currently doesn't exist. Great. Yeah. Uh, one more question. Uh, while you're in Australia, I wonder if you will be meeting with institutional investors, uh, superannuation funds and things like that. When... Uh, when and if you, you do, what are the sorts of uh, concerns that those large investors bring uh, when, when they're considering uh, projects that uh, IFC is inviting them to invest in? Mm-hmm. Um, it's an excellent question because uh, I, I focus too much in, in everything that I said so far on this kind of um, upstream part, you know, building projects, policies, sector reforms, uh, de-risking, and then um, we, we have the whole commercial space where obviously IFC with its own commercial financial instruments can play play in, including bringing uh, other banks, you know, to, to under our syndications. But the, the space where we are now uh, focusing a lot more is, I call it the kind of totally right and side of the spectrum, is bringing institutional investors to finally focus on 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 diversifying their their portfolios and going into riskier riskier countries in a pooled pooled basis. So uh, we are trying to bring them into some of our mobilization instruments. We have something that we have created with a few insurance companies, which we call Managed Co-Lending Portfolio Platform, where we bring institutional investors into a platform. Uh, $5 billion for infrastructure, for example, and uh, including de-risking that platform. And then on an automatic basis, that platform co-invests or co-finances with IFC. So if you're partner with us on that platform, you don't need to worry about individual project in Zambia or individual project in PNG. You would be on an automatic basis be co-lending with us based on our due diligence and, and processes. This, this, I think, can finally, this mechanism can bring much more institutional investors' money into emerging markets that otherwise they would not be comfortable to do uh, because of, of, of their risk uh, appetite. And uh, I, we can speak a lot more about it internally here. I know that the team plans to meet with institutional investors. That's on the debt side. That that would probably be the best way to pull their funding into into financing in emerging markets. On the equity side, there are discussions to bring them in some of our uh, funds, equity funds, where again they would be having a chance to invest with us in a diversified portfolio in emerging markets. I guess one thing uh, we haven't discussed um, is China. And, uh, you know, it's unusual because in Australia now we're obsessed with China, <laughs> and uh, especially in the Pacific. And some of these ideas that uh, Bob and others have been promoting of having a development finance institution, they've taken on new life because we have to compete with China. Mm-hmm. So it's certainly a major factor for the Pacific and for Australia's role in the Pacific. Um, yeah, does, it, does China impact on the IFC? Do you yes. compete with China? Do you collaborate with China? How I mean, uh, to get things straight, uh, China is our shareholder. Yeah in the same way as Australia is, and it has different shareholding, but nevertheless, I mean, we are an institution with 185 uh, country members. So we have an ongoing dialogue with China, and our work in China and with China has evolved over years. Um, from this, and, and I also wanted to say that China has lower GDP per capita than some other middle-income countries, such as Mexico, and mm-hmm. we are still very active in Mexico. So the key for us is to help China uh, also build its capacity, right, to deliver on environmentally sustainable projects, mm-hmm. on properly structured projects, to diversify from state-owned uh, enterprises, to bring more in more 
vibrant private sector. And um, uh, on top of that, we when we work in China, we focus on the poorer parts of China, mm. where there's still a lot of excluded communities who don't have access to finance, access to, to goods, etc. So we are highly selective in China. And uh, I think that strategy so far has worked very well. In terms of China going abroad, we will always take a view of the host government, mm. whichever government that is, and whether that that sector or that project is a priority for a country. And if it happens to be possible with a proper Chinese sponsor or client uh, who we can bring to the same standards that we always have to fulfill and help them, you know, um, implement the project and realize it and create an impact on the ground, we would, of course, engage engage in it. Mm -hmm. But uh, we don't have a strategy to support China on Belt mm -hmm. and Road Initiative, nothing of that nature. We have a strategy in Pakistan, strategy mm -hmm. in Nepal, strategy in PNG. And again, if we can bring um, other, other sponsors, uh, investors, clients, if they happen to be from China, we'll work with them. Right. And there are cases where you yes. co-invest with Chinese companies? Co-invest or, or finance them. Uh, no. One case that I'm very proud of is um, the Three Gorges uh, Hydros in Pakistan, mm -hmm. uh, where obviously the access to power in Pakistan was a key issue for the government. And through the involvement of this Chinese company, um, they now can give access to 16 more million people, clean energy, hydro, mm -hmm. hydropower. And I've still worked a lot with the client to do the, uh, the, the hydro projects uh, under the highest possible standards. And the company changed, improved those standards, uh, not only at the level of Pakistan, but also decided to, to increase its standards at the corporate level. And they are engaging in projects across the world, Latin America, Europe, uh, going to Africa as well. So by working with them in Pakistan, we now got them to the level of standards that they will adopt, mm. adopt and implement uh, elsewhere as mm. well. It's a really a good example mm, of bringing a Chinese mm. client to those standards and taking them to do even more than what we asked them to do. We asked them to do it in the right way in Pakistan. They decided to do it across the globe. Okay. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I've been uh, uh, second I that. Uh, in your mind, what's the greatest? What do you see as the greatest challenge for the IFC? Okay. Just, even just one thing. Just like um, in the next few years, is to rewire the institution to do what I was talking about, right? Uh, to uh, spend time, some of our best people who sit in Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, New Delhi, to make sure that they go and have conversations with PNG Power, with uh, hospital in Fiji and other places and, and help move the needle with the knowledge and experience that they would bring. That doesn't come naturally to people. I will have to direct them to do that. Uh, but uh, we know what the ambition of the institution is. I talked about 3%. I talked about doubling and tripling. That's going to happen only if people focus on as small as the country is or as small as the project is or as complex as it is. To give you an example of Nepal again, it took eight years to structure the very first hydropower uh, PPP project with a lot of blending. Uh, we will use either private sector window for it. But eight years. Can you imagine eight years? We, we went through at least two governments, if not more. Some people who started eight years ago are not there anymore. Some others had to pick it up. That's a heavy lifting. And to get IFC people, or at least a subset of IFC teams, to do that work, believe that it's possible, uh, I think that's the biggest challenge for IFC right now. It's not anymore access to funding. We will have capital increase. We have the risking tools. We have advisory capacity. We have the link to the World Bank. It's going to be to get those people to work in that way, which, as you know, can succeed, but also may not, right? And um, we bring a little bit private sector mentality. We want closings. We want completions. We want to get things done which is good, but at the same time can be hugely demotivated if you spend eight years on something that actually never happens. Okay, yeah, Lisa. Um, just a quick, in terms of your engagement with uh, GFAT and Treasury, are there anything that you're asking of them in terms of uh, their engagement in the Pacific region to support what you're doing? 
Uh, thank you. I mean, I, I was mostly going around thanking them for all the support that we have gone because without DFAT support, we would not be able to have such a strong presence as we already have. We have about 30 people in Sydney. We have strengthened the Fiji office, which can also serve as a mini hub for some of the surrounding uh, countries. We have a reasonably strong presence in PNG, and uh, we just have a new resident, we'll have a new resident representative in Solomon Islands who will again build a small team around him or her. So without DFAT, it wouldn't be possible. Uh, so we would like um, to continue with that type of um, uh, support. And then DFAT is obviously behind many of the studies that we are doing. I mentioned the tourism study in Solomon Islands, Western Province, the Agri linkage study in Fiji. Uh, so we hope that we can agree on common priorities and continue to pursue them, starting from some kind of diagnostics and then uh, having a plan on how to, to implement them. Uh, and we have discussions around blended finance. Uh, I think it may probably link also to this possible new development uh, institution. We would love to help Australia uh, get more returnable capital into the development game, less grants, more returnable capital. We know how to do it. We've done it now for 10 years, and um, we would be happy to share our experience uh, with DFUNT and, and others on that. You say you've done it for 10 years. 10 years, uh, is uh, uh, it, and going back to culture and what's difficult for IFC, 10 years ago it was inconceivable for IFC to use less than commercial uh, financial structures for its clients. So we started very small, almost hiding under, you know, uh, some group of innovators around climate, realized that climate will not take off and we will not be able to, to finance climate projects. At that time, that was very innovative. Uh, if we don't resort to some of those funding and government mm -hmm. of Canada helped us innovate. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we, we've come a long way to the point that it became a cornerstone of the IDA 18 package with a large $2.5 billion of blended finance to the risk private sector. Um, for years, we have been transferring uh, to IDA uh, parts of our net profit because we were not sure that we can do it ourselves through private sector, but we were giving away some of our uh, profits to IDA to do it through public sector. Now we have made the case that we believe that private sector can actually come in. Let us keep the money, let us blend, and let us bring more private players by de-risking them in those markets. Okay, we are pretty much out of time. Just want to get the opportunity to find all questions. All right. Well, uh, I think we'll uh, call it a day. Uh, thank you, Nina, thank you so much for uh, coming here and being prepared to take all these questions. Uh, you, I think you did a great job answering them, and it was a really interesting discussion. So please join with me in thanking you. Thank you, Steve, for your interest uh, in IFC, for your own uh, focus on development in the Pacific, and to all of you for every single bit that you do to uh, make things possible in those countries. I realized the issues around connectivity, the issues around development, the challenges, and, and every single meeting, every single roundtable, I really felt that we were adding value, even though some of those things did not involve any financing. So let's keep our focus on those countries and continue to help them develop. Thank you very much. Thanks. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Center. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.